All right, guys, we are, uh, my intro this morning is going to be you guys having discussion first thing out of the gate. So um, you got three questions to start off with there. So start off with your first three questions, and we'll get back up here in about five minutes or so. So first three questions, go ahead, discuss. All right, let's turn in our Bibles to John chapter 11. John chapter 11, looking at verse 1. And I have to say that that was the most like energetic, upbeat conversation about death I have ever heard you guys have. So I heard lots of laughing and all kinds of crazy stuff. So John chapter 11, verse 1. And today we're looking at the story of Lazarus. And I'm going to try to go through this story as quickly as possible and get some points at the end and then have some more discussion at the very end. John chapter 11, verse 1. It says, Now a certain man was ill, Lazarus of Bethany, the village of Mary and her sister Martha. It was Mary who anointed the Lord with ointment and wiped his feet with her hair. So remember the story um, in the Gospels of, of that woman pouring perfume out, expensive perfume on Jesus' feet? And then wiping those feet, those nasty, dirty Jesus feet with uh, her hair. That was, this was Mary we're talking about. So you've got Mary and you've got Martha, their sisters, and they've got a brother named Lazarus. And Lazarus is the one who is ill. And so, um, so right away we see in the story that there are names being used in the story, some first names. If you recall previous stories, it just says there was a blind man. Or there was a paralytic. There were no names. So these are people that Jesus knows personally. They're his friends. He knows them by name. They're people that are important to the story. In fact, we know from elsewhere in the Bible that these are people that Jesus spent time hanging out with in their home. These are his friends. So think of the people that you're close to, the people that you're, you're so close to, that you can go to their house and hang out and watch football um, TV shows, eat their food, get into their refrigerator. I mean, not literally get in, but, you know, take food out of the refrigerator. And that's the people, that's the people that we're talking about here. These, Jesus knows these people very well. They're his friends. Look at verse 3. It says, so the sisters, so Mary, Mary and Martha, so the sisters sent to him saying, Lord, he whom you love is ill. Man, it's hard talking Bible talk sometimes. He whom you love is ill. But when Jesus heard it, he said, this illness does not lead to death. It is for the glory of God so that the Son of God may be glorified through it. So in that day, any illness was a serious illness. You know, most of you today, if you hear about an illness, someone's sick, you're like, okay, no big deal. Take some medicine, they'll be fine. But in that day, any illness could be a serious illness. Think about 100 years ago. If you got pneumonia 100 years ago, you might die. It's a serious deal. In our culture today, we're not used to that. We're used to medical technology where um, almost anything that you and I get can be cured um, in a relatively short amount of time. Um, recently, one of our, is, is Doug Ganey in the room? Is he here? Where's Doug? Is he over there? Hey, can I talk about you real quick? What's that? Is that okay? You have no idea what I'm going to say, but you're okay with that? All right, I'll, I'll say it. So, so you guys remember a few months ago, uh, Doug had like what they called a mini stroke, and he had to go to the hospital, and I went to go see him in the hospital, and then he had a second one later on, possibly they thought it was, and they, they were going to do heart surgery anyway, and they discovered that Doug had like a little, um, 
like tiny hole in his heart. Now, it's not, it's not the God-shaped hole everyone talks about in their heart. Um, it's not that hole. It's actually a real hole that was actually in his heart. And, um, and so that's what caused the stroke, the mini-stroke. And so um, I go to see Doug the morning of the surgery, and Doug is like the most relaxed guy I've ever seen because he's about to have heart surgery, and he's in there just goofing around, sitting in the bed, just like, hey, what's up, Dave? How's it going? And I'm like, dude, I'm, I'm a grown man, and I would be like probably crying right now if I were you in your situation. And he's just totally relaxed. And why is that? Because most of us understand that almost anything we encounter in our culture today when it comes to health and medical, we know can probably be fixed in a relative short amount of time. Not everything, but many things can be fixed. So with Doug, they literally slice open his leg, run like a cord up through his heart, and patch the hole. And then he's done. He's, he's awake. He's fine. Uh, talking to people later on that day, right? It's amazing what technology we have in our culture today. But back then, if you get sick, there's a good chance you just might die. And so when someone got sick, it was like, hey, this could be it. This could be the final thing. This could be their end. And so they're worried about Lazarus uh, meeting death in this story. Look at verse 5. It says, now Jesus loved Martha and her sister and Lazarus. So when he heard that Lazarus was ill, he stayed two days longer in the place where he was. Now, just for a second. It says, he loved Martha and her sister and Lazarus. So when he heard that Lazarus was sick, he stays two days longer in the place where he was. Are you seeing an inconsistency in the story? It doesn't make a whole lot of sense, does it? Okay, if he loves him, why is he going to stay where he is and not come to Lazarus, right? Let's look at the next verse. Then after this, he said to his disciples, let us go to, to Judea again. The disciples said to him, Rabbi, the Jews were just now seeking to stone you, and are you going there again? And so they're coming to Jesus saying, okay, we, we know you've healed strangers. We know you've healed people that you don't even really know personally, like you know us. So, so why would you not come and see your, your friend Lazarus, the person that you love is sick, come and heal him, come and see him? And so imagine a scenario if if one of you was in the hospital, deathly ill, and your parents called me as a pastor and said, hey, can you come see my son or my daughter? He, might, he or she might die. And what if I just said, um, okay, I'll be there in a couple days, right? I mean, that'd be like, wait, what? You're going to be in a couple days? Like, no, it's urgent. It's come now. Like, they might die tomorrow or today. What are you even waiting around? And so this is Jesus' response. I mean, he, he doesn't leave for a couple more days, and you can imagine that, um, that, uh, that many of us have questions when it comes to suffering, questions like, why would God allow this person to pass away at such a young age, or why would, allow this, why would God allow this person to pass away in, in this way, an accident where they couldn't say goodbye to their loved ones? Why would God allow these things to happen? Why, 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 why? And what I want you to know this morning, I can't answer every question about suffering, but I want you to see this morning, I, th- I think there are some things that we can learn from suffering that um, God wants us to know about suffering. So here's the first thing. You can write this down if you want to. The first thing is God gets the glory. God gets the glory when someone suffers and is healed. Go to the next slide back there at the back, guys. Uh, God gets the glory when someone suffers and is healed. So it's pretty obvious, right? When, when someone gets sick and they're healed, God gets the glory, right? The second statement might surprise you. 
God also gets the glory when someone suffers and is not healed. And I'll explain this. Think of someone who suffers, and yet, in spite of their suffering, they cling to Christ all the way to their grave. What kind of powerful truth does that speak to someone who's not a Christian? If someone suffers, and in the middle of their suffering, they still cling to Jesus Christ in the midst of their suffering, what does that communicate to people that don't really believe in Christ yet? It communicates that he's worth worshiping, right? That, that he's, he's worth having over everything we have in this life. And so God still gets the glory if the person's life, if that person will allow God to work through them, God still gets that glory even if they're not healed. Thirdly, suffering produces dependence upon him. Think of the time in your life when you were the most dependent on Jesus. When is it? It's not usually after you um, win a championship for your soccer team. It's not usually when you're successful. It's usually when you feel like a failure, when you feel like you're suffering. That's the time in your life when you feel like you're most dependent upon Jesus. Fourthly, suffering gives God's word more traction in our lives. Suffering will send you to your Bible a lot more than success and lack of suffering will. Do you realize that? Do you, do you, are you understanding what I'm saying here? When do you find yourself wanting to dig into Scripture more? It's typically when you suffer. When do the words leap off the page more? It's usually when you suffer. God's Word has more traction in your life when you suffer. And then lastly, suffering shocks us out of our apathy. The great uh, writer C.S. Lewis once said that pain is God's megaphone to a lost and dying world. And it's true, right? That if God wants to get your attention, how does he usually do it? It usually is by suffering and pain and, and those kinds of things. It's not typically that we sense this great need for God whenever we're successful and we're not suffering, but typically the reverse. Look down at, uh, at verse 9. It says, Jesus answered, Are there not twelve hours in the day? If anyone walks in the day, he does not stumble, because he sees the light of this world. But if anyone walks in the night, he stumbles, because the light is not in him. Another example of Jesus making a statement that seems to make no sense in the context of the story, right? And here's what he's saying here. Basically, he's calling himself the light of the world, and so to walk in the day means to walk in Jesus' light, in fellowship with him, believing in him, obeying him. But to walk in the night means to walk apart from Jesus, not believing in him, and not obeying him. And I would say to you that when you are suffering, that is when you are most tempted to walk in darkness, right? That is when you are most tempted to believe lies and half-truths about Jesus, right? When you suffer, that's when you are more likely to walk in darkness. Look at verse 11. After saying these things, he said to them, Our friend Lazarus has fallen asleep, but I go to awaken him. The disciples said to him, Lord, if he has fallen asleep, he's going to recover. Now Jesus had spoken of his death, but they thought he was talking about rest and sleep. Then Jesus told them plainly, Lazarus has died. And for your sake, I am glad that I was not there, so that you may believe. But let us go to him. So Thomas, called the twin, said to his fellow disciples, 
let us also go that we may die with him. So Jesus refers to death as sleep in this story. And the disciples think he's actually talking about sleep. They think he's saying, you know, Lazarus is falling asleep. Let's go wake him up. Let's go wake Lazarus from his slumber. And so Jesus, um, they think he's referring to sleep. So then Jesus tells them plainly, he says, look, guys, Lazarus is dead. When I say sleep, I mean dead. He's, 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 he has died. And I want you to see this. Christ refers to sleep as refers to death as sleep, and when you and I really know the truth about Jesus, it totally changes how we view death. Now, I'm not suggesting to you that at the next funeral you go to, that when everyone's crying and grieving, that you're like, hey guys, like cheer up, like they're just sleeping, right? I'm not suggesting that you try that maneuver, but when you look at, when you, when you know the truth about Jesus, you can see that death for a believer, is really a form of sleep, right? That yes, we, we take it seriously, we mourn, we grieve, but it, from the eternal perspective, death is like sleep for the believer. Look at verse 17, it says, Now when Jesus came, he found that Lazarus had already been in the tomb four days. Bethany was near Jerusalem, about two miles off, and many of the Jews had come to Martha and Mary to console them concerning their brother. So when Martha heard that Jesus was coming, she went and met him, but Mary remained seated in the house. So, like, listen to this. So he's been dead for four days, and imagine the family's reaction, right, when Jesus walks up four days later, and it says in, uh, in verse 20 that Jesus shows up, but only Martha's the one that goes out to meet him, and Mary stays back. You wonder why that might be? I mean, think about this. They, they sent for Jesus. They, they asked him to come and, and heal Lazarus, or at least come see Lazarus. But then he doesn't show up for four days. Now Lazarus is in the grave. He's, he's already starting to decompose. And finally, Jesus shows up. And do, do you think you might know why Mary doesn't want to go out there and, and say hello to Jesus? You think she might be a little bit angry and upset that Jesus has healed people that we don't even have the names of in the Bible. We just know a blind man, a paralytic guy. And, and here's a person that, that Jesus loves and has been in his house and, and eaten food out of his refrigerator, and, and Jesus took four days to get to this guy, Lazarus, that she might be just a little upset about that and, and can't really face Jesus. You know, in, at that time, there was already people coming around the family and, and, and comforting them. Uh, in that time, a Jewish funeral looked like this. There were 30 days of mourning, 30 days. In the U.S., we totally don't understand how to grieve and mourn, do we? Like, for us, it's like 45 minutes at a funeral, and we're done for most of us. That's all I can take is that's it. But for Jewish funerals back then, it was 30 days of grieving and mourning the loss of this person. They even hired, they even hired um, professional mourners. True story. There are people that their job was to show up at a funeral of someone they didn't even know and to cry and wail and moan. I'm, I'm, I'm serious about this. And, and because they took, they took grieving so seriously. I'm not sure how they would even advertise that business. Like, here's my card. I'm a professional mourner, so give me a call. I'm not sure how that would work out. But um, they'd also make uh, 
they'd march to the tomb and make speeches, kind of like we do today. And so grieving was a part of their process, and, and Mary and Martha are in the middle of that, and Jesus hasn't shown up until now. Look at verse 21. Martha says to Jesus, Lord, if you'd been here, my brother would not have died. But even now I know that whatever you ask from God, God will give you. Jesus said to her, your brother will rise again. Martha said to him, I know that he'll rise again in the resurrection on the last day. Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. And everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. Do you believe this? She said to him, yes, Lord, I believe that you are the Christ, the Son of God who is coming into the world. So the first thing out of Martha's mouth is not, Jesus, thank you for coming and, and mourning and grieving with us, but it's, hey, Jesus, where have you been? Like, if you, had, if you had showed up, then Lazarus may not have died. And so Jesus replies, he says, okay, your brother's going to rise again, but she doesn't think he means in the next 10 minutes. She thinks he means the resurrection at the last day, like the future resurrection that the Jews believed in. And so I want to summarize for you just the next few verses, uh, 28 to 34. We're going to summarize that part of the passage. So Jesus is standing at the edge of the village, and he's surrounded by family and friends of Lazarus. And everyone's weeping and mourning, wondering where Jesus has been. And then in verse 35, we see something very profound. Look at verse 35. It's the shortest verse in the entire Bible, but it carries so much weight. And it's just simply this, Jesus wept. Jesus wept. And I think this passage, this one verse, carries so much weight because it shows that Jesus understands friendship. It shows that Jesus understands the humanity and our emotions and the fact that we are close to people and the fact that we grieve when someone is lost and they depart through death from us. It shows he understands emotional pain. It shows he understands what it means to lose a close friend. And some of you in the room this morning, you have lost a close friend to death, close relative to death. And you think that Jesus Christ can't relate to you. This verse says that he can. He can relate to you. He knows exactly what you have experienced if you're someone that has lost someone that is close to you. Think about this. The God, Jesus, God weeps. Think about that. The person, the God who created all of us, everything, shows emotion and weeps. Most of us, I think, look at emotion of any kind as like weakness or almost sinful, right? What's one of the things that people say when they start to cry in front of other people? What do they say? I'm sorry. Like they've done something wrong. I'm sorry, I'm sorry. I need to gather myself. I mean, Jesus weeps at the loss of his friend Lazarus. And don't get me started on the young guys in the room, because all the young guys, you're, you're fed this, this line of bull by our culture that says men can't show emotion because it's weakness. If you want to be Christ-like, it's okay to show emotion. It's okay to weep at the things that Jesus weeps about, right? For, for some of you guys in the room, you think that um, 
that to show emotion is, is weakness. Uh, what are the guys going to think of me if I show any kind of emotion? Um, wh- what's going to happen? And let me just tell you this. Maybe being a man is to not care about what other guys think of you, right? Maybe to be a man means that you don't care what they think as long as you are emotional about the right things, right? I'm not saying that a guy looks at you and you're like, oh, stop, stop. You know, I'm not saying that you cry over anything and everything. I'm saying if you cry and weep about the right things in the way that Jesus does, that is Christ-like. That is a godly, godly thing. Look down at verse 38. It says, then Jesus, deeply moved once again, came to the tomb. It was a cave and a stone lay against it. Jesus said, take away the stone. Martha, the sister of the dead man, said to him, Lord, by this time there will be an odor, for he has been dead four days. If you have the King James, King James Version of the Bible, uh, it says, he stinketh. Anybody have that version? of the Bible in here? That's like an outdated version, big time. If you have that, then you're showing us that you're, anyway, never mind. Um, he stinketh, official KJV translation. And this is Martha, always thinking about the practical stuff. I mean, she's, she's like, Jesus, what are you doing opening up the grave? I mean, he's going he's gonna to stink to high heaven, no pun intended. Um, She's probably there with the air fresheners, like the Lysol, like, okay, if, you're, if you must, then I'm going to have to freshen this place up, right? And so this is Martha, always thinking about the practical stuff. Mary's the one, her sister's the one who's like all emotional and um, can't look at Jesus. She washes his feet with perfume and her hair. She's like the ones that write, she's like the one that writes poetry, okay? And Martha's the one that likes to clean dishes as her hobby. And so... Um, So they're total opposites in their personality. Look down at verse 40. It says, Jesus said to her, did I not tell you that if you believed, you would see the glory of God? So they took away the stone, and Jesus lifted up his eyes and said, Father, I thank you that you've heard me. I knew that you always hear me, but I said this on account of the people standing around that they may believe that you sent me. When he had said these things, he cried out with a loud voice. Lazarus, come out. And there's a guy named Augustine uh, a long time ago that said that it's good that Jesus said the name Lazarus because if he hadn't said his name, that all the graves would have been emptied when he said, just come out, right? Can you imagine that scenario? Jesus is like, no, no, not you. You guys go back into the grave. Get back in the grave. I just meant Lazarus, come out. Look at verse 44. The man who had cried, died, cried. I'm all emotional up here now. The man who had died came out, his hands and feet bound with linen strips and his face wrapped with a cloth. Jesus said to them, unbind him and let him go. So I want you to imagine for a minute if you're at a funeral of someone that you deeply love and then all of a sudden that person is raised and is resurrected from the dead. Think of the most gut-wrenching funeral you've ever been to in your life. What is the most gut-wrenching, sad funeral you've ever been to in your life? For me, um, it was a guy. My next slide shows a picture of this guy. Um, This is a guy named Ian Weichel, and he used to go to this church. And I met Ian when he he came to a newcomer's brunch at Gary's house, Gary and Bev's house, one Saturday morning. 
and uh, he was about to deploy off to Iraq. And uh, I met his wife and, and him both there that, that, that Saturday. And we had a long conversation. And he said to me, he goes, hey, when I get back from Iraq, I want to come serve with your high school kids. I said, okay, I'll, I put, wrote his number down. I said, I'll give you a call when you get back into town. He's going to be gone for a year. That was the plan. And so a few months later, uh, he ships out. And um, a few months into his tour, I'm having breakfast with Gary DeSalvo, our pastor, um, at IHOP, and Gary's just kind of already like on the verge of tears, and I have no idea why. And I said, hey, are you okay? And he said, um, no. He said, last night, one of our guys in Iraq got killed. And I said, who? And he said his name, and I just went, Ian. Ian? And I just lost it, immediately lost it, because I knew that he had, his wife had just given birth to a, a baby boy as well. And so imagine, like, going to this guy's funeral was, like, just really, really tense and tough because I didn't know this guy at all. I had one conversation with him. I knew that he had a son, a small baby boy. But going to his funeral... Our church was just, was gut-wrenching. If you've never seen, like, a military funeral of a guy who's lost his life in battle, I mean, there's just no words to describe it. And so I think pretty much the entire congregation at this funeral was just, just weeping over this guy and his loss. You know, at the end of the funeral, his wife walks down to the front, and she gives a salute to his uh, helmet, his boots, and a gun standing straight up like this. They give the 21-gun salute outside, and it was like with each... With each blank that was fired that day, it was like just more and more people lost it inside this congregation. And so just think of the most gut-wrenching funeral you've ever been to in your life, the most sad funeral you've ever been to, and think, just imagine if like that person is resurrected, like in the middle of that, like just, they come out of the grave, they come out of the coffin, or... They come back into the room. Just imagine that scenario. Imagine the joy that this, this wife and her small child would have had if the dad walked back into the room. Just imagine that. I mean, this is what Lazarus's family experienced, right? This is just what they experienced. Like, he, he, he rises out of the tomb. And, and there he is. There he is, alive. And so imagine the joy and the happiness if, if this actually took place. Like, just this really happened, right? Do you understand that? Like, this really happened. And so this is what it must have been like for the family of Lazarus to see, to see him come back to life. And it's true that whenever you're at a funeral... There's, 
there's something in us that we just know there's something wrong with this. Like even someone who loses a grandmother and she's 82 years old and she has cancer and she's suffered for a long time and there's a party that feels like a little bit of relief about it, but also a party that knows like this is wrong. Like this is not the way things are supposed to be. And I want to tell you this morning that you are right to feel this way about death. Death is an overwhelming thing. I know with Pastor Gary going through cancer treatment and just the fear that people have of like, well, what if it returns and those kinds of questions. And there's a part of us, we are right to look at death and say, that is wrong. There's something wrong with death. There's something wrong about that. And I think there's two reactions that many of us have to death, the reality of death. And the first one is this, is to forget about death. To act like it's not really a big deal. To act like, let's not think about it. If we don't think about it, it won't happen to us, right? That's the first reaction. The second reaction is to fixate upon death. To be obsessed with it. To be fearful, so fearful of it. And so the question is, how do we respond to death? How do we respond to the reality that one day we're all going to die a physical death? And if you don't know Jesus Christ as your Savior, you will die an eternal death separated from him forever and ever. And that's not my hope for any one of you. But I want you to see this in the story, that Jesus Christ has these two sort of like polar opposite reactions in the same story. On the one hand, he refers to death as sleep, but he also weeps. And I did not mean for that to rhyme. But he refers to death as sleep, but he also weeps at the fact that someone's died. And so I want to let you see this morning, there's two things I want you to get from this. You can write this down if you want to. Is that we should allow ourselves to feel the emotional weight of death. You should allow yourself to feel that in the same way Jesus Christ did. Because there's something about death that's just, that communicates to us that that's not right. That, that death reminds us that we, are, that we are mortal beings, right? It reminds us that we are, are, are people who... Um, are really in danger of a bigger death, and that's an eternal death, an eternal separation from God. And so it's okay for you to look at death and say, that's jacked up, that should not be the way things are. But the second thing I want you to get from this is that we should not allow ourselves to live in an unhealthy fear of death. Because even though Jesus is grieved on the one hand, and he weeps on the one hand, he says to her, I am the resurrection and the life. And if you're someone who is living in fear, constant fear of death this morning, I want those words to wash over you this morning, knowing that Jesus Christ says, I am the resurrection and the life. Because I think uh, recently, um, this story seems to not really, uh, seems to kind of pale in comparison to what I've already mentioned, Gary DeSalvo and and Ian, uh, he lost his life in, in war. Um, but, you know, my wife and I, we've had, uh, my wife's family, um, there's a lot of, like, breast cancer in their family and a lot of history with that in the family. So doctors have always said they need to, said to, they said to my wife, they said, you need to start getting tested and MRIs and stuff like that um, at a pretty early age. And so recently, go to the doctor, 
doctor says, yeah, you're 37, you need to start getting tested and get some MRIs done and whatnot. And, and it's her first time to ever go through this. And, and there's a part of me that's just like nervous and anxious for days leading up to the first MRI, and, and her as well. And we're both just kind of being quiet, not talking a whole lot about it, because you don't know what to expect. And your first fear is, like, what if they find something? Like, what if they find a spot? What if they find a lump? What if they find something that's going to be a terrifying thing to go through? And so, of course, with what Gary's gone through recently, it's kind of made us think, like, get all anxious and worried about stuff. And so um, she had her first MRI, like, two weeks ago, and everything is clear. Everything's fine, which is the good news. But what it forced me to realize was that I can't put my hope in MRIs. I can't put my hope in, in tests and tests coming back positive or negative or whatever the case might be. And here's the really cool part about this. The day before she goes in for her MRI, just by chance or God's sovereignty, I'm going with God's sovereignty on that one. Here's the passage that was in my daily reading uh, for the day before her MRI, and it was this, 1 Corinthians 15. For this perishable body must, be, must put on the imperishable, and this mortal body must put on immortality. When the perishable puts on the imperishable, and the mortal puts on immortality, then shall come to pass the saying that is written, death is swallowed up in victory. O death, where is your victory? O death, where is your sting? Jesus Christ says, I am the resurrection and the life. Do you believe that this morning? Go ahead and finish your last few questions at your tables.